Chelsea, sometimes when I am driving around in my minivan or at the park, pushing my kids around in my yoga pants, I want to be like, I promise you people I'm adventurous and I've had an amazing <laughs> life. Unfortunately, Lowe's audio did not turn out as great as I would have hoped for. However, I did want you to know what she really sounds like. So she created this little voiceover that we could put in here so you guys can get a little taste of her real voice. Hi, Beyond the Picket Pence listeners. This is Lo. I can't wait for you to hear my story, but I wanted to pop in real quickly because my audio is really terrible. So it sounds like you're listening to somebody on a pretty bad phone call, but you can still hear me. So it's worth a listen, even though my audio isn't that great. I love Beyond the Picket Fence. I'm an avid listener myself. And as Chelsea and I were talking about this little hiccup, my one thought was Beyond the Picket Fence is all about showing how we're all imperfect. So that's kind of perfect, don't you think? Anyway, I hope you enjoy me sharing this little piece of my background info that my own listeners don't even know about. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. When you're meeting with people virtually, a lot can go unseen. When I was a guest on Lowe's podcast called Milk Baking Minutes, we talked about comparison in the subject of nursing. It's actually a beautiful conversation whether you're breastfeeding or not. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Anywho, I had a pretty instant connection with Lo, and what better way to test the idea of everyone having a story than to invite someone who you have no idea at all what their story is to come on the show. We were discussing back and forth what we might focus on, and Lo very nonchalantly mentions Maybe she wanted to focus on what life was like living with a disability. I was like, what? That is probably our fourth or fifth conversation and I had no idea. Lo was actually born without a foot. Again, with this information, I imagine the story would be one thing. But then, out of nowhere, she brings up the Paralympics. Is there anything Lo can't do? How do you go from being a disabled child to a Paralympian to a stay-at-home mom slash lactation consultant? Let's get into it. Here's Lo. I'm Lo Nigrosh, and I am a mom of two. I've been married to my husband for 10 years. We've been together for 14. I am from Texas. My parents are conservatives. I grew up in a religious evangelical home. I'm a first-generation college graduate. My husband is a secular Jew who grew up in a liberal Jewish household, the son of two people who have PhDs. So we are very, very different. We come from very different backgrounds, but I align more with him and his family's views now, but it's so interesting that we came together in the first place. And we have two children. One is eight and a half, and my daughter will be five in just a couple of weeks. 
Oh, so cool. And remind me, do you homeschool? Yes, I homeschool my kids and I'm a work from home mom. I'm a lactation consultant and I was working for somebody else for the last four years, a insurance covered pump provider that also breast pump provider that also provided lactation counseling to all of our clients. But now I am starting my own private practice along with the milk making minutes. So, so cool. I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. You're going to change lives. I'm so excited for it. (laughs) I came on your show and was talking about myself mostly and my breastfeeding story, which was amazing. And you helped me really heal so many inside wounds I didn't even know I had. And then I was like, well, of course you should come on my show. And then you were like going through all the different things that you could talk about. And you said something about like being disabled or something. And I was like, what, how would I ever know? Because I've only ever seen you from the neck up, right? Because freaking virtual land is crazy. So will you just take us back to where you feel like it all starts and just take me through the message that you want to share today? Yeah. So I was thinking about what can I share knowing that, knowing what the heart of your podcast is. I have so many things I could share, but a lot of what I could share isn't really about me. It's about other things that happened to other people in my family that have deeply impacted me in the last four or five years. And so those aren't really my stories to share, even though I've been deeply impacted them. So that was my first thought, but then I ruled it out. And then I've been grappling with recently being a person with a physical disability because I was born without my left foot. I've had a prosthetic leg. My parents argue. One of them says I learned to walk with it. One of them says I learned to walk without it. But either way, I got my first prosthetic leg or prosthesis around the time that I started walking. And I've had it my whole life. But I never used the word disabled. Or back then, I was born in 1981. The word would have been handicapped. We never used that word to describe me. My parents didn't use that word. We never had a disabled tag. I do now. So until I became a Paralympian, and then I was surrounded by all these other people who were highly capable, some of the most amazing athletes on the planet, yet they identified as being disabled. Lowe joined the Paralympic team in 2003. She competed in the 2004 Athens Paralympics and won a bronze medal. She went on to the world championships in 2006. So that was kind of the start of my journey of thinking about myself as a disabled person. But I would say it was only until very recently in the last couple of years that I've really been able to grapple with it even more, how it's impacted the way I view my body, how it impacts the way I've interacted with the world, how it's impacted my relationships growing up and my peer group and my desire to fit in with people and how I view myself when I'm at the beach and when I'm at the pool and all of these things that when I was growing up, I tried to just be normal. She said normal in finger quotes. You know, I have wasted a lot of time on trying to be normal. When really, is there even a normal? I mean, obviously here, Lo was visibly different than most others. And we will get into the effects of that a little bit later. But can we just agree that maybe none of us are normal? My mother-in-law once told me normal was just a setting on the dishwasher. That made me laugh because who's to say what normal is? It's my mission to encourage the world to let our freak flags fly. Can we stop 
aiming for normal and start aiming for our personal best and allowing room for our personal best to be different every single day. I want to celebrate when your best is climbing Mount Everest. And I want to celebrate with you when your best is getting out of bed and staying alive. That is really why I created Beyond the Picket Fence Facebook group, so we could celebrate these moments together, a place where we can let whatever it is be whatever it is. So I wondered how Lo handled her normal. I was always really open about it. If somebody wanted to ask me about it, I was happy to talk about it. If a kid asked about it at the park, I would always take off the leg and show them all the parts. So I wasn't ashamed of it, but I wasn't quite aware of all the ways that living in a different body impacted me. Wow. So can I ask you, you said you were born without a foot. So can you explain where does your leg stop? Yeah. So I'm missing about three inches of length between my left foot and my right. So my leg is pretty long. My what's called the residual limb, or I used to say my real leg. It's about three. So it's pretty long. So I can actually even walk without my prosthetic, but there's a limp. And then I don't have any of the foot in my bones. I think we all know she meant that she didn't have any bones in her foot. I do have an ankle. So I have a little stump that I can move up and down. And I have little toes that are just like against the stump and the toenails are on the inside. Does that hurt? What hurts is they have toenails that I have to keep cut and that is kind of bothersome. And then sometimes they'll get like snagged on the sock or something. Mm. So that's my residual limb and it's really skinny. I don't have the muscle development. So if you saw the two legs compared to each other, the left leg looks way different than the right leg. And nobody really knows why my mom didn't take any drugs during pregnancy. There's not a real clear explanation as to why I was born with a congenital disability. There's some speculation that the foot, at the time of the foot development, it might have just been pressed into the amniotic sac and then it just didn't allow for the development. But no one really knows. When you talk about how you didn't consider yourself handicapped or disabled for so long, do you feel like that was helpful or hurtful once you started to actually like own that? Do you wish you would have? Yeah, it's an interesting question because in many ways, I am very thankful to my parents for the way they approached my disability. They took care of my needs. They make sure I always had prosthetic care. It was not a focal point of my life. So in a lot of ways, I'm really, really, really thankful that they did not treat me differently than their other two children that I ever saw as a child. And my dad, he's a funny, kind of humorous guy. And so he's the one who kind of taught me to bring humor into it. So if we were at a restaurant and people, you know, he would like stomp on it just to like give people a shock factor or give me a kiss. <laughs> one time we were standing in line and he stomped on the wrong one. And I was like, oh, oh no, no that's what he's doing. <laughs> Or there's a story of me, we lived in Miami, I grew up in Texas, but we lived in Miami, Florida for a period of about three years. And between the time that I was three and six, and we were out at a golf course lake, and I stepped on some glass on my right foot, which is the the fully developed foot. And there was no time to get my leg back on or anything. And so he just rushed me to an emergency clinic. And the doctor, in this way that doctors do, old white guy was like, oh, man, it looks like we're going to have to cut it off. And my dad, he didn't notice the other leg. 
And my dad shot right back at him and said, oh, man, that's what happened to the other one. And the doctor looked at it and immediately got this embarrassed look. He was ashamed. He starts backtracking and apologizing and saying how sorry he was. And of course, I didn't care. My dad didn't care. I was just like crying because I had glass in my foot. And then, of course, when my dad said, no, no, I'm just kidding. He was born that way. He was stone cold and like <laughs> not happy that my dad had done him that way. So I got a lot of humor. I used to tell people all sorts of stories. Oh, it was a crocodile or a shark attack or my sister got mad at me. I'd be like, see my sister over there. Don't make her mad. You know, things like that. <laughs> so in, in many ways, I really appreciated that they enrolled me in sports. We went on hikes. They didn't coddle me. I feel like they approached it really well. Knowing what I know now, though, about how important knowing people is who are like you, I wish we had been more connected to other disabled kids and to other amputees or kids with congenital disabilities, physical disabilities, because over the years, as I've met more and more people, you get this like even if I see so I notice people with prosthetics everywhere I go I live in a small town I was just driving somewhere recently to the grocery store and I looked out my window and there was somebody at the gas station she had a prosthetic leg and I was like oh cool there's somebody else and it's like you always get this feeling of me too me too and I think I would have benefited from that as a child and in in fact, I grew up going to Scottish Rite, which is sort of like Shriners Hospital. I don't know if you're familiar with Shriners, but they provide free medical care to families, regardless of income. So I got my prosthetic for free, essentially, from the time I was three until I was 18. Shriners ran a program where they took 14 teenagers on a big ski trip. They provided the clothes and paid the airfare, their lodging and all of that jazz. They stayed in nice condos in Winter Park, Colorado, which had the National Disabled Ski Center. Each person had their very own disabled ski instructor, who knew exactly how to adapt instructions for different disabilities. Lowe got to go four or five times, but the first time Lowe went, she was the youngest of the group, at only 13 years old. And every time I went, I would fall almost into this, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I would fall into this depressive pit when I got back. Wow. Because it was such an amazing experience to be <laughs> I, I'm not, I didn't expect to cry at that point of the story but to be with other people who just had some of your same experiences you know and we didn't really talk about it much it's not like we were sitting around talking about being disabled we were just normal teenagers but being in that setting with other people for the first time in my life was pretty incredible. And my senior year, the day I came back, I was scheduled to go to homecoming at my tiny school. And I did not want to go. I was just dreading it. I just felt like, I think I ended up going. I can't remember now if I canceled or not, but I remember really wanting to cancel, just feeling so depressed that I had to leave these friends that I had made. They were from all over, mostly the state of Texas, but maybe regionally, they were from all over. And it just felt so hard to leave those kids. It's kind of like that song that goes, 
Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Except for like opposite. (laughs) You didn't know what you were missing until you found it. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And it was hard to even explain that to my parents. In fact, before I went on those trips, like I never used the word stump to refer to my residual limb. And I remember there was a, uh, but a lot of disabled people do. But I never grew up around disabled people and I was born disabled. And so it's not like I was able-bodied and then I became disabled. And so I just had my own language that I had created for myself. So I always called it my little foot. And so then I remember on one of those ski trips, I had a ski instructor that was really making me mad because he kept referring to my leg, my little leg as my stump. And I kept saying, it's not my stump, it's my little foot. You know, he'd be like, is your stump okay? And I remember complaining to my parents. Well, years later, after I joined the Paralympic team, and these people are like your sisters, right? You spend eight hours a day. You spend all day every day and then eight hours a day together on the court for weeks on end. You're traveling internationally. You're living together. It's an amazing experience. And so they all referred to their limbs as stumps. And you just start to realize... I and disabled. And in fact, when I was on the Paralympic team, I was also in college and I finally got a disabled pass for my car. And I got it because I was going to college and I could never find parking. And then I had a situation where my leg was sitting really poorly and I was getting some rubbing and I had a situation where I couldn't wear it for a few days and I was on crutches. Oh my gosh. And my teammates were like, why do you not have a disabled pass? And I was like, I'm able-bodied. I don't need a disabled pass. And they were like, no, you are disabled. And there are going to be times when you are more disabled than not. And just because you don't always need the pass doesn't mean you don't sometimes need the pass. And sometimes using the pass means you're setting yourself up to be more healthy for longer because yeah. you're taking off that, the long-term um, overuse of the limb. And so then when I was on the, cr- I was on, on crutches for a few days and could not find parking, I was out of the crutch in some really far, that week I went and applied for disabled pass and I've had one ever since. So that I started using the word stump and my parents noticed it. And my dad to this day will be like, didn't you used to hate that word stump? I'd say, yes, dad, but people change. That's the thing about being human is we're adaptable. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Interesting. So is it offensive if someone else calls it a stump, like someone who doesn't have a disability? I mean, I think it's different for every person. Like when that, I think it's good to always ask people, you know? Yeah, that's true. What do you like? How do you want me to refer to your limb? And Because that guy who was saying stump, I wasn't ready for that language then. I feel like oftentimes, is there a lot of staring? people just like looking at it? Would you rather people ask you than just stare at it? (laughs) Absolutely. And in fact, I always tell people children are way better at this than adults. They just ask. And it's always pretty awkward when you're in a situation in which the child wants to ask and the adult is preventing them from asking. And so, yes. Because it almost like dehumanizes it. Like, just ask. It's like, yeah, yeah. And that's for me. Now, there might be more people there. You know, I can only speak from my experience, although I have known now at this point, hundreds of people with physical disabilities 
but most of them are very confident in their disabilities because they're competing on a world stage. Yeah. So, but I think most people would rather you just say, Hey, do you mind telling me? I noticed that you have a prosthetic foot. Do you mind telling me about it? Ooh, that's a really nice way to ask. This can be a tricky situation. When you notice something like this, or let's say you're getting together with someone who just had a huge life change, maybe lost a loved one or experienced a trauma, each human's experience is different. Even if they had the same exact circumstance, they would experience it through different lenses. So the truth of the matter is, we can only do our best, and even that is bound to offend someone. I love that she said, just ask. That's the only way you'll know. And if you're not brave enough to ask, please. Just don't stand there and stare. At the very least, just have a normal conversation. At this point, Lo has mentioned the Paralympics a few times now, and I have got to know. What sport did you play? So I played sitting volleyball. What? Volleyball is so hard. (laughs) It is so hard. And this is actually interesting because I was always really athletic growing up, I was not as athletic as my siblings. And this is one of the ways in which I wonder if my parents had a bias they did not realize they had. Because they enrolled me in sports. I played basketball. I played all the way through high school. But there were times where I, like, I really wanted to be a dancer for a long time. And they just would not enroll me in dance. Now, as a parent, when I look at like the cost of dance, for instance, <laughs> like, you know, it might have just been something like that. But I do remember my parents saying, well, some of the dance stuff you might not be able to do. And I wish they would have just like let me figure that out. You might have figured so out a way that you could do it, actually. Yeah, there are like professional ballerinas who wear prosthetics. But I was enrolled in basketball. But my sister was a superstar track and soccer athlete. And my brother, he was a superstar athlete. His story is completely completely different. He had a lot of restrictions in his life and everything, but he ended up becoming a reconnaissance Marine. He, he owned a CrossFit gym. He, to this day, is the most athletic and the most fit person I know. My sister still plays sports competitively. My sister was in the Junior Olympics for track when she was really little. Wow. So I always felt like I was overshadowed by their athletic prowess, but I did play sports. And so I was always really athletic. And then, you know, remember, I did not identify as a disabled person. So I was at my prosthetist office. By this time, I had switched from the children's hospital system to like just a private prosthetic office. And I loved the prosthetist I had. I was in his office and he had another patient who was on the United States Women's Sitting Volleyball Team. Now, at that time, this was in 2003, at that time, it was a brand new program, and they were seeking new athletes. So there had been a men's sitting volleyball team established for a long time, but sitting volleyball had not been in the Paralympics. So you may or may not know this about both the Olympics and the Paralympics. Each year, the Olympic Committee decides on a new sport to introduce to the game. And so in 2004, they were introducing women's sitting volleyball. And so the United States was building a team. And I bring this up to say, if I even approach the team now in 2022 with my level of skill that I had in 2003, I would be laughed off the court. But because they were building a new program, sitting volleyball had not been established, they were really just looking for athletes who they could convert into sitting volleyball players. And so 
my prosthetist brought this up. They were they were looking to recruit players. And he said, the Paralympic team is looking to recruit women for the sitting volleyball program. And I said, uh-uh, I don't do disabled sports. I play normal sports. And he said, Lo, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the Paralympics. You need to go to a tryout. Just go to a tryout. And if you don't like it, I won't harass you. But you need to do this. Lo was 22 at this point. She hopped on a quick call. And before she knew it, she was off to a tryout. So I flew out to Chicago, and it was the hardest sport I've ever played in my life. Because it's sitting. It's not in wheelchairs. It's sitting on the court. Wait, what? Full disclosure, I actually have never watched the Paralympics. I had never even heard of sitting volleyball, and when I did, I assumed it meant wheelchairs. Dude, if you have not seen sitting volleyball, Google it right now. I mean... Of course, unless you're driving or something. <laughs> but seriously, as soon as you can, Google it. Because as soon as she said that, I Googled it during the interview. These athletes are straight up beasts in the best way. You can watch some amazing videos. Some of my former teammates are still playing. If you really? Oh, my yes. gosh. And they just won the gold medal last year. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, they're just sitting on the court. What? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. So not, okay. That's crazy. It's super fast paced because in standing ball, which is also fast paced, the ball has more time to get into the air because you're up higher. But in sitting ball, you're, you're sitting down low. And so there's way less time to react. And the movement is very challenging. You are not stationary. You are moving the entire time, but the movement is very difficult to figure out. And so... In fact, we obviously, the Olympic volleyball team, their volleyball skills are better than the Paralympic volleyball team, I would say, most of the time. But when we were training at the Olympic training centers, every now and then we would have some special game where the Olympic volleyball team would play the Paralympic sitting volleyball team. And we would beat them. They couldn't move. And we would be able to place the ball in such a way that they couldn't get to it. So the movement is really challenging. So after the first day, I cried because my butt hurt so (laughs) bad because you were like rubbing on the ground the whole time. And my whole body was sore. My shoulders were sore. My triceps were sore. My arms were sore. Like I, I was like, oh my God, how do you guys do this for six to eight hours a day for like four days in a row? And my coach said to me, the coach of the team, he said, Well, you're not a volleyball player, but you're an athlete. So if you can be committed to this, it's your job to be the athlete. It's my job to make you the volleyball player and you can come and continue to train with us. And that was it. I was sold. I got goosebumps when you said that. That's so cool. She played from 2003 to 2006. In 2004, the team went to the Netherlands before the Paralympics for a friendly international tournament with all the European teams. They went into that tournament having only played Pan American teams. Keep in mind, Pan Am teams were newly developed, so they thought they were all that and a bag of chips. Well, that tournament, they lost every single match. You see, in Europe, sitting volleyball had been around for a long time. After losing every single match, they really got a taste of some humble pie. So we leave this tournament like, oh crap, we have a lot of work to do in the next three minutes. (laughs) But we, we did it. We did the work. We would train a week on at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. 
a week off. And th- those weeks off, we were still training on our own. We just weren't together as a team, right? Wow. So we would do this. And then we show up in Athens. And kind of the chatter was, this is 2004. So the chatter was, Team USA, they're going to medal in 2008. But they're not ready yet in 2004. And we came out <laughs> and we won our first match. And everybody was like, whoa! <laughs> you know, they were so surprised at the change we had made from June to September. And so we ended up taking the bronze medal. And it was pretty amazing. That is so cool. Do you have like your own medal? Oh, yeah. That is so cool. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I knew I was talking to an incredibly human. Then found out that she had a disability. Then that she was a Paralympian. But oh, no, not just a Paralympian, a bronze freaking medalist. I had a little fangirl moment. Not going to lie. It's not every day you meet a Paralympian athlete. So what the heck? Here is this lactation consultant with a breastfeeding podcast. How did she get from point A to point B? We'll find out the rest of that after the break. Do you ever feel a little bit exhausted by your social media feed? Seeing everyone else's perfect moments and forget that they have a whole life going on behind the scenes? Don't you wish that there was a place to connect with people in a more authentic way? A place where the imperfection and messiness of life is celebrated? Well, if you want to connect with others like you, who celebrate the good times and are real about the not-so-good times, then join us in the Beyond the Picket Fence Facebook group. It's our secret corner of the internet where you can escape all of the highlight reels and create more meaningful connections. Let's stop comparing and start being compassionate towards others, and especially ourselves. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash Beyond the Picket Fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. Okay, let's get back to it. Lo has just won a bronze medal. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I continued to play for two more years, and the coach of the men's team was establishing a training center, an official USA sitting volleyball training center for the men's team in Edmond, Oklahoma. I graduated from college, and I decided to move there and train full-time with him. And like two other men had moved to train full time. And then I would also train every time the men came in to train, I would be training with them. And then, you know, I was still traveling to train with the women. And so I got way better in those two years. Lowe was nominated to be team captain in 2006 for the world championship. She was even the libero. If you don't know volleyball, that's a defensive specialist position. You wear a different color jersey and you only play the back row. So I was really good at defense. My serving was always where I struggled. Me too. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Serving is so hard. <laughs> yeah. I always struggled with serving, but I was really good at defense. Doesn't it sound like she was at the peak of her career? So I was really getting curious as to what ended her sitting volleyball career. Actually, this is kind of interesting. So I always kind of butted heads with our coach. He died a couple years ago, actually. And I had a really complicated feeling about his death because I actually left the team prematurely, you know, before I really had wanted to, because I wasn't going to be in a place where I didn't feel supported by the coach, you know? Was that a different coach than the one that you had started with in 2000? No, same guy, same guy. Just over time, did the relationship change or did you struggle with him the whole time? 
thought he kind of struggled with them in a lot of ways. He was a good coach. And in other ways, he was a tough man to play with. So in Athens, this guy, John Kessel, who I think still is, was a big shot for USA Volleyball. He had traveled with our team to be the USA Volleyball team liaison. And we were sitting down in the dining hall at the Paralympic Village. And he said, your serve receive stats, meaning the statistics for receiving serves are the best in the tournament of any player. And he said, if you were playing for the Olympic team, this is how much that would be worth. And he wrote it down on a napkin and put a dollar sign. I think I still have this napkin. And I don't even remember the dollar amount. And he wrote it down and he pushed it across the table. And Mike, our coach, was there. And uh, and Mike said, that's not what my stats show. <gasps> I was like, this guy just told me I have the best serve-receive stat of the tournament, of the Paralympic tournament. And you're going to look at your player and say, that's not what your stats show? That's so mean. Yeah. And he was not a very nurturing person. And as I got better and better, and I was training with the men's coach, I adored the men's coach. He's still the men's coach. I adored him. I learned so much from him. And honestly, I think Mike was a little upset that I was learning so much from the men's program, but he put me into the setter position. So I was now setting and I was elected team captain. We go to the world championships in 2006 and those were in the Netherlands and I I didn't play very well. I bombed. I wasn't serving well. I wasn't hitting well. You know, as a setter, you don't hit that often, but sometimes you have to. I just was not, it was just not a good tournament for me. Mm -hmm. And it felt really contentious with Mike. Like I felt the pressure. I was team captain. I was just feeling all the pressure from this contention between not ever feeling good enough for the coach. I will say, and this was kind of part of the story I wanted to talk about, I have always been someone who bounced around. So I've lived in 35 places. I think about 35 places. I haven't really added up in a while since I was 18. I had traveled all over before I joined the Paralympic team. And so you and I were kind of talking offline about how you have this voice in your head, always questioning your decisions, telling you you're not good enough. So I have this voice that says, you just quit because you were bored, you were ready for the next thing, it got too hard, whatever, and regret the decision. And then I have to remind myself, if I had not quit, I wouldn't have met my husband. You know, I might not have my beautiful children. You can't second guess decisions 20 years later. Yeah. But every time the Paralympics roll around, and now you get to watch them live, like for years you couldn't, but now you can watch the tournaments live. I get this pain. The pain of what if, you know, for years I considered myself a quitter. And that is a really painful word, really painful. I thought of inserting a pep talk right here of how we fail forward and it's not quitting. It's being really good at figuring out what we don't like. But you know what? Let's just honor our pain of the things we quit. Here's a few seconds of silence for the things that you quit, the what ifs, the decisions we sometimes mourn. Okay, now let's let that go and not let our mean voices in our heads punish us any more. When we have uncomfortable feelings that come up, let's honor them and move through them. But let's not double think and create unnecessary pain around it. I'm sure it hurt when her team went to win three silvers and a gold medal. You can do the and thing again. 
Lo can totally love her kids and her life and feel the pain of not being included in those medals. Remember the and. These things can all exist together. Do you feel like it was kind of toxic for you to be with that coach because he was feeding the negative voices in your head? <laughs> yeah, I just feel like I, like I could not be good enough. And you know, when you step up to the service line and you are afraid you're going to, I'm trying not to curse on your podcast because I know it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> and you and you are afraid you are going to mess it up on an international stage. You are likely to mess it up. Yeah, like I even still to this day, there's a gym in town that does open gym volleyball. I can only serve good once, if once. Like I yeah. am 29 years old. I've grown up. I don't have my little streak. I lift weights. Like I'm strong. Right. I cannot serve. It's a mental and, game. And once you get the voice in your head that says serving is difficult for me, it becomes so hard to overcome that voice. Yes, it's true. Anything, even just Anything. life in general. Once the voice is, I can't. Yep. And he was playing into that, right? So I would step up to the service line. I would want to prove him wrong. I would want to like show that I could do it. Instead now, of just getting up and just serving. Yeah. A year later, the men's coach, he also took over the women's team. The year you left? So some, the the a year, year later? Oh, that's painful. It, it was painful. And I thought about coming back. But honestly, once you leave, it's really hot. You're out of shape. You're not in the same shape. It was right after Hurricane Katrina, and Lo moved to New Orleans as a volunteer doing cleanup for a year. Then she rode her bicycle from New Orleans to central Mexico with a guy that she met on couchsurfing.org, studied at a language institute for a few months, and moved to Florida. Eventually, she wound up back in Texas as a bilingual teacher. That's where she met her husband. I'd gotten on the train for a different life. And I had been pretty adventurous before I joined the Paralympic team. And when you join the Paralympic team, you just can't, your life revolves around that really. So you are like a stay at home schooling mom. That's a lactation <laughs> consultant, which is like, hello, so different. So your life, as you just said, got on a different train, right? So what happened on the next train? Like your life changed yeah. so much. Chelsea, sometimes when I am driving around in my minivan or I am at the park with my Dunkin' coffee, pushing my kids around in my yoga pants, I want to be like, I promise you people I'm adventurous and I've had an amazing <laughs> life. I know. I would have never, I would have never <laughs> guessed any of this. I want to be like, I've ridden my bike from New Orleans. Mexico people and I have a bronze medal at my house <laughs> yeah seriously all that to say like I'm happy for the life I have now so it's hard when you've had I, you know how I used to describe my life you know Forrest Gump mm -hmm. the movie Forrest Gump and how you're like how could one person do that many things like one minute he's running across the United States the next minute, he's like a ping pong champion for the United States Army. And the next minute, he's like off in war somewhere. Like he had so many different parts of his life. So here we have the minivan mom version of Forrest Gump. While the Paralympics and traveling around sounds so incredible, it doesn't sound like that was the plan. Actually, I'm not sure there ever was a plan. When I was in high school, 
I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Did you? No, I'm a, I'm a lot like you, like no idea. I mean, the dream was Broadway. I would love to have been on Broadway. I wanted to be an actress. Yeah, I wanted to be an actress. I was in theater. And then I wanted to be a missionary. We would be would best be... friends. We would have been best I friends. I know, <laughs> I know, yeah. I had big dreams. I thought the world was going to know my name. This is really interesting. Here is a world-class Paralympian who also has traveled across America on a bike. Lo has already accomplished more than most people. And she, just like me, has thoughts of not being enough. What? Yeah, it's wild. It's wild how much of our worth, though, is determined by the income we bring in. Yes, that's true. So this is kind of where I was going with this. I never really knew what I wanted to be. And I kind of just like bounced around. I was always really excited about the next job opportunity. I never had trouble finding work. But I always was like, no, this is what I want to do with my life. No, this is what I want to do with my life. I always found lots of passions. And then for one reason or another, my attention would take me somewhere else. Now, I was the primary breadwinner in my family until my son was three years old. So I've made lots of money in my life. But right now, I'm making zero dollars a month. If we did not determine worth, by the money we brought in, I would be like, I'm killing it right now. Yeah, I feel that. The way she was the breadwinner for a long time was as a teacher. In her 10-year teaching career, she never stayed at a school longer than two years. At one point, her husband and her both went to teach a year in Honduras. Her husband quickly realized teaching was not for him, so eventually decided to try and be a prostatist. Somewhere in all of that, they ended up in Connecticut, and Lo got pregnant. So now we're on Lowe's life number uh, like four, motherhood. And if you don't know, motherhood can really change a person. I don't know about you. Becoming a parent, becoming a mom changed me to the core. And I did not expect it. I had been around kids my whole life. I had babysat from the time I was a child myself. I babysat my neighbors. I got paid by multiple families all growing up to babysit. I have many, many, many cousins. I was a nanny for three years. I was very comfortable with babies. I did not expect becoming a mom to change me like it did. I can't quite describe the change, but I remember, I don't think fatherhood changed my husband in the same way that motherhood changed me. I am not the same person now that I was then. He does not obsessively listen to parenting podcasts. He has not read every single book there is. He does not wake up in the night in a panic, wondering if his children are calling for him and they're not. And I don't think that's a bad thing. No, I'm not saying that his experience should be my experience. I just did not. You know, you kind of have this picture of like, I'll still have my life, but a child will be in it. Like when you took your nieces for the day, Mm -hmm. but it's that your life is now the child. Your personhood is now these people. Maybe it's a soul change. Like a piece of your body is walking outside of your body. It feels like that. And I, I hear people, you know, there's like that Instagram video that goes around. We're like, yeah, my heart is outside my body. And it's like amazing 
to have so much it's like pain almost i feel like my heart's gonna explode because i just love them so much and then it's like trying to found the find the balance of like who am i like don't forget like what about me i'm still a person and i need my own time but i can't always like last night i just wanted my daughter to go to bed because i was like i am tired i need my own time but then she was crying and then i got her talking and then she was talking about all of the trauma we went through with jackson and then she told me how she was feeling and i was like i would stay up forever for you right now like yeah and no one talks about how all these things like it can be so hard and so amazing all like how can these two opposite things exist together it can it's just so crazy lo told me about a book she read a while back called hunt gather parent and in that book it talks about how in ancient culture and still now in foreign areas of the world when a woman comes home with a baby there are five to twelve other primary caretakers five to twelve we have created the society where we are so isolated and then we wonder why our rates of postpartum depression are so high because you weren't supposed to do this all alone in your house by yourself just your baby and when people say my baby never lets me put him down there must be something wrong with my baby Actually, no, that's physiologically normal. It's biologically normal. Babies want to be held and comforted. And yes, it is very hard for you because you weren't supposed to be doing it alone. Wow. So true. And so I think just that feeling of like, this has changed me. I feel so connected to my children. And why is it so freaking hard? And the thing that you said about not really liking other people's kids, I like babies. They're cute. But I did not become a lactation consultant because I love babies. I became a lactation consultant because I am interested in the birth of a mother and her experience in entering motherhood and how those immediate days and weeks and months can put her into on a trajectory to feeling confident and feeling like she's got this and feeling like she knows how to make decisions she feels good about or feeling like I must be doing everything wrong because nothing's going right. I can't care for my baby. My body has failed me. I followed the pediatrician's advice, which is often wrong. I followed the nurse's advice, which is often wrong. And it's not going right. So it must be my fault. And then I'm not sure many parents are saying then it means I'm not good at mothering, but I think that seed gets planted. My body has failed me. I'm failing my baby. How can I then be a good mother? And so that's why breastfeeding feels so important to me. It's not just about the days and the weeks and the months that you breastfeed. It puts you on a trajectory for the rest of your motherhood of feeling confident and feeling capable or not. And I think much of the medical profession, because they are not educated on breastfeeding, yet they give advice about breastfeeding as if they are, do not understand the damage they are doing to millions of women who want to breastfeed and then are given horrible advice, which goes against the physiology of breastfeeding, and then feel like it's their fault, like their bodies failed them. Wow. It is the birth of a mother. It's the birth of a mother. (gasps) And that's what I'm interested in. That is so beautiful. I did not expect becoming a mom to change me like it did, but it did. Was it the same for you? Did you have the same like? Yeah, but I feel like you lived a life. I feel like I never lived a life. I got married at 19 and had babies at 21. So how old were you like when you had your baby? 30. 
32 or 33. Yeah. I can't even so remember. I didn't yeah. even have like a lot to change. I feel like it did change me from, of course, I think, it, I think it literally does change you. You grew a human inside your body. The chemistry of your body literally changes, mm-hmm. but it was definitely like a someday I'll be on Broadway. And then it was like a, nope. I got to take care of these kids, <laughs> yeah. which sounds like regretful that, that I'm saying it like that. But like I told you during your interview, I would have labor every day if I could, because it's just such an amazing experience. And I just, I love my kids. I was also around kids a lot, like babysitting because my mom had a baby when I was 12. So I like, oh yeah, babies, and my mom was a teacher. So I like raised uh-huh. my little sister <laughs> and then I was a nanny out of high school. And ever since I had my kids, I was like, so no one else is going to raise my kids. So until my kids are in school, I'm going to be the one taking care of them. So I've always found jobs to take care of kids. So I take care of special needs kids. I babysat. I worked at after school programs. This is bad, but I don't really like kids. I don't like other people's kids. I mean, I like them. I can be nice to them because I know and I love yeah. them as like their own little human. But like, uh-huh. I didn't want kids, but my husband, I knew he wanted kids and I knew I'd have kids because in my religion, you have kids, right? right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't expect to have my kids and love my kids so much. When people are like, I can't wait for my kids to go to school. I'm like, what do you mean? I can't wait for my kids to get home. Like, well, except yeah. for since I started the podcast, I've been a little more selfish, but yeah, pre-trauma, I was like a really... I loved my kids. So I love my kids still. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. But I don't know that it shook me like it shook you because you were a whole person. You had a whole life. I'm not sure that I yeah. have really lived a life yet or a different life. That's interesting. That's a really, really interesting perspective. And you know, my mom, she got married at 19 and had her first child at 20. And I always think like at the age I am now, my mother had a child in college, like two children in college maybe one in college and one about to be it's like wild to me and I'm still here at the very beginning with an eight and a five-year-old yeah see and I'm how old are you I'm 41 yeah I'm 29 and my kids are the same age yeah it's wild it's wild yeah it's amazing you know how we were talking about the voices in our head we have to combat the voices in our head telling us we're not good enough right yeah. Like, and I'm sitting here listening. Like I haven't even lived a life and you have talked about nine lives that you've already lived. And I'm like, how could you not see how amazing that is? And my life coach told me like when I told her I quit, like I'm always a quitter. Like I can't do the podcast because I'm just going to quit it because I quit everything. And she's like, I encourage you to change that narrative and to say, I'm really good at figuring out what I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. So now that we have honored the hurt earlier, we can flip the script. All of our skills and life experience build us to what we are now. We don't quit things. We just stop doing things that aren't fulfilling us, right? Right. It's not lost time. We are learning and growing. Okay, so how the heck did Lo get into lactation consulting? I still couldn't piece that part together. So when I decided to get pregnant, I dove in hook, line, and sinker to understanding birth, a lactation, physiological birth. I took a 12-week, two hours a week that I drug my husband to birth education course. And in that course, the teacher who caught, she taught it in her home is called Bradley. It's like a, a form of childbirth education where the partner is key because they like are there to be your emotional and physical support. And so it was so the woman and her husband that taught the course And she had a toddler that was breastfeeding and an older child too. 
And it was the first time that I, my sister had breastfed and a cousin had breastfed and I had seen both of them kind of up close and personal. So the seed had been planted, but then being in this course and just watching this toddler run up and breastfeed and then run off again, and then run out to breastfeed and then run off again. I didn't even know it was impacting me at the time, but it did. It impacted me deeply. And she slept with one child and her husband slept with another child in the room. And I remember my husband and I being like, never, we would never do that. We would never not sleep in the same bed. And now I wish my husband is like a point of contention between my husband and me because we do sleep in the same bed, but my children at eight and five are still pretty needy at night. And I really wish that I could just sleep with both of them every night. They're only young for so long, right? Yeah. So I get it now. But when I was pregnant and I was a teacher at a no excuses charter school at the time, you know, I had a different viewpoint. So already the seeds of change were being planted, even though I didn't know. So here she was in this course. She was going to be birthing in the hospital with midwifery practice, but got diagnosed with gestational diabetes. That immediately put into play all these hospital policies that impacted her. And it did not matter how I was doing or how my baby was doing. All that mattered was that I had this diagnosis and that meant I had to be induced. And I kept saying, can we just ignore the diagnosis for a minute? Can we look at me? Am I doing really well based on all the signs we see? Yes. Okay. Is my baby doing really well? I was going for twice weekly stress tests. I'm sure you're familiar with those. <laughs> and yes, your baby's doing well. Okay. Then why do I have to be induced? Because the risks increase when you have gestational diabetes controlled by insulin. We just want to, yes, I know the risks increase, but can you look at me and say that my risk has increased? Well, no, we can't. Still, I had to be induced because it was hospital policy. I had Even three, you were you know, like actively, these were things you were really saying, yes, right? It's not just, yes. wow, I'm so proud of you that you did that. That's really cool. Yeah. And so I'll tell you that when my daughter was born, and so this was 2013, when my daughter was born in 2017, I had a home birth because I was not going to go through what I did the first time in the hospital. I had three midwives at this home birth with me, and I did not give birth until 41 weeks and six days. So that's pretty indicative. I'm not a person who's going to give birth at 39 weeks. Now, every pregnancy is different, but I got induced at 39 weeks. And how was and that delivery? Like I had a three-day labor. I had a three-day induction labor. So not just three days starts on its own labor, like active drugs trying to get this baby to come out. Now, this is where my disability came into play is that I wear a prosthetic leg. When you are on Pitocin, you must also be on IV fluids. I swelled up like a freaking blueberry. I could not wear my prosthetic. Mm. So not only could I not wear my prosthetic during the delivery, I was trying to have an unmedicated birth. I ended up on the third day getting the epidural so I could rest and relax. But I couldn't wear, I couldn't wear my leg and I'm nine months pregnant trying to find positions that are comfortable to endure the labor and then hopefully to push my baby out. I did end up having a vaginal delivery with the medication, but I could not wear my prosthetic leg for a week while caring with a newborn. Wow. That was a hospital policy that negatively impacted my introduction into motherhood in a way that nobody could have predicted because they were not looking at me as an individual. They were looking at me as a statistic. 
I vowed at that moment, if I were to ever have a baby again, it would not be in a hospital if I could at all help it because I wanted to be treated as an individual. And the passion for standing up for women as individuals was sparked. Not everyone is brave enough to say those types of things out loud for themselves, but Lo was, and she still ended up doing something she knew her body couldn't. So I have my son. From the moment he first latched, I knew it, I knew it hurt. Lowe first used the hospital lactation consultants, then a private practice lactation consultant. Her son had four tongue-tie revisions, even chiropractic care, and nothing was solving the pain that Lowe had. I was in severe pain. Now, when I tell my story, especially as a lactation consultant, I make it very clear to people I would not expect anyone else to make the same choices I was making. If somebody else is in the same situation that I was in and they say, I need to stop because that is what is best for my mental health, I absolutely support them in that. And I help them figure out how to do that safely so that they don't get mastitis, so that it goes really smoothly, so that baby is still well fed. In my case, my mental health dictated that I continue to try because stopping would have been worse for me mental health wise than enduring the pain. I learned really quickly who I could confide in, who I could say, oh my gosh, this is so hard when it came to both sleep and breastfeeding. Because to this day, my son has a really hard time sleeping. He has some sensory needs that were just now like at the tip of the iceberg, trying to figure out. He probably has some other neurodiversity we haven't figured out yet. He was showing signs of this as a baby. I just didn't know. And so your pediatrician is asking, is he getting enough sleep? You need to get the right stretches. No, my son just needed to be held close because he needed more sensory input. I wish I had leaned into that a little bit more as a new mom instead of trying to change my child into a person he wasn't. So... I learned really quickly who the people were that were like, why are you doing this to yourself? And who the people were that were like, I'm so sorry, that sounds so hard. Because it's so interesting. When it comes to decisions we make as moms, we often get criticized if it's a hard thing. But if I were going to school to get my PhD and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so hard. I'm not getting any sleep. My dissertation topic is being rejected. You know, my peers aren't understanding the work I'm trying to do. People would say, push through, you're going to get there. Or with my podcast, right? Or my business. People are saying, we know it's hard. You can do it. But when it came to breastfeeding, they're like, why are you putting yourself through this? Why are you making things hard on yourself? Even though that was a thing that was important to me. So we have to be really careful. Pediatricians, nurses, medical providers, friends, family members. We have to treat new moms, in particular partners, with care and help them decide, are you doing this because of external pressure or are you doing this because it's important to you and you need the support to get through it? Wow, that's amazing. That sentence right there that you just said can apply to everything. Are we doing these things? We need probably support from each other and support from ourselves to think about that. Like, are we doing this because of what it looks like or because it's important to us? Right. And then having, and then knowing 
you know, this is where we get into the whole friend, like finding your tribe, because knowing who's a good fit, who will give you the support that you need. Like, for example, in my religion, I don't drink, you know, I could easily find friends that are like, just drink, it doesn't matter. But the friends that I love are the ones who are not members of my church and they drink and live their life. But I had one friend that I called and I was like, I feel like I want to try drinking because I've never tried it before and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, Chelsea, because she knows me and she knows how I align. And I was having a faith crisis, you know, and she was like, I'm all for if you want to try drinking, if that's what you really want. But you're not sounding like yourself. And I'm worried about you because that doesn't align mm. with who you are and what you want. And I'm like, wow, what a good friend because she totally yeah. drinks and she could have easily just been like, sweet, come over and let's drink. I but- know. Let's go <laughs> to the bar. Right. Yeah. So I think it's so important to find these friendships that will really, like you said, give you, because maybe some people do need the friend that says push through, like you got this push through. And maybe some people do need the friend that's like, I support you in quitting. Like, you know what I'm saying? You just have to be careful, especially when it comes to mom things, because I really think that the work that moms do is devalued. Yes. And so often if somebody says, oh my gosh, breastfeeding is so hard, then somebody says, why don't you just do formula? I did formula and my baby's fine. Well, yeah, of course your baby's fine. And it's the perfectly acceptable choice for someone to choose formula. But if internally that's not the support that somebody wants, it's not helpful. It actually just makes it worse. Yeah. Because it validates the mean voices in the head that are already making you feel like crap. Like in general, when someone goes to say something mean, we've already said that to ourselves in our head. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I feel like this applies to homeschooling too. Like sometimes I'll feel like homeschooling is so hard. And if I complain to the wrong person, they'll be like, well, why don't you just put them in school? That's not the solution to my problem right now. Yeah, because you can this. It's like the whole and idea that I always talk about is you can be frustrated with homeschooling and feel deeply inside that homeschooling is the right thing. Both those things can exist together. It's natural. Exactly. Exactly. I've never been a person who gets stuck somewhere I don't like. So if I'm really at a place where homeschooling seems like it's not the right fit for my family, I will make a different choice. So let's be more supportive of our friends. If you're going to give advice, try to make sure it aligns with what their core values are, not yours. So back to Lowe's nursing experience. The first visit with the private practice was so comfy and cozy. I mean, her office was so cozy. There was this comfortable chair. She spent like 90 minutes with me. And I didn't walk away feeling immediate relief with breastfeeding. But I walked away feeling validated, feeling understood, feeling like she knew my goals and she was going to help me meet my needs. She also helped me figure out a plan for taking breaks when I needed to take breaks. And in that first appointment, I said to her, how do you become a lactation consultant? This was nine years ago. Nine years ago, she planted the flag. She was going to create a space where women felt validated, heard, and where women created their own goals and then met them. Let me tell you, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to become a lactation consultant. You just, there are two master's degree programs in the country, but they're super expensive. It's really not worth the money because you can do it in other ways. It just takes longer. And so I just put it in my brain. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start chipping away. And here I am. I've done all the requirements. If you want the info on becoming a lactation consultant, Low is your gal. As usual, I will put all of her information to connect with her in the show notes. She went on to explain all of the hoops that lactation consultants have to jump through and the three ways that it's possible. 
but for time's sake, we skip ahead to when Lowe's daughter was almost one. Lowe was hired on by an insurance-covered pump distributor as a lactation counselor. So after all these different lives she's lived and all these different areas of work, she has gathered all the things that perfectly align for her to do her own podcast and have this lactation practice. So it's really, you know, if you can look at your life holistically and say, even though, because one part of me could say, man, I don't finish anything. I don't stick around. When the going gets tough, I leave. Because a lot of times I was like, okay, I'm really tired of my boss. I'm going to find a new job. And I would find a new job, you know? And so that voice that we've been talking about can sometimes say, you don't stick with things. When it gets hard, you jump ship. I did that with the Paralympics. I was tired of dealing with my coach. But the other side could say, you know what? You stick up for yourself and you don't stay in situations that don't feel good to you. And each new experience brought you to where you are. I love that. And it's really hard to fight that battle internally, especially when you're not at the point where you're like supporting your family. There's just always that inner voice that can really F you up. It really can. But when you talk to yourself, you expect more than what you would expect from another human being. Yeah. Friends, we can be too hard on ourselves. Really. There's a thousand things that need to get done, all while managing our mental health, caring for our relationships and our house and blah, blah, blah. Seriously, it's a lot. If I had told you a Paralympian, world traveling, bilingual teacher, homeschooling, lactation consultant, boss babe, mother and wife has negative inner voices, Would you believe me? I would have seriously doubted it. I would have guessed someone who has accomplished so much in only 40-ish years was set. It's so easy to see how crazy someone else is for beating up on themselves, yet we feel it's okay to do it to ourselves. Stop it. Seriously, we have to stop it. Why do we feel like we aren't enough when someone like Lo, who has accomplished so much, still has that feeling? It feels factual, but I assure you, it's not the facts. It's not real. It's not real. It's not important. It can't win. And I'm sure if we switched it, if we turned it around and we had to lay it out like I just did, there would be so many amazing things where I was like, oh, my God, you did that? Oh, my God, you did that? Yeah. It's so cool. Because everybody (laughs) has that. Everybody has that. Yep. And that's the whole point. If we can just lay all these things out and see people for who they are wholly. Mm-hmm. how much more love and grace can we find for each other and for ourselves? So Lo, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? When I was thinking about this question, I was like, well, I don't know. I'm so vulnerable. I think everybody sees beyond my white picket fence. And in fact, I really feel like that's one of the reasons, you know, I originally thought this episode was going to be about maybe the loss of friendship and how that's happened over time and how me bouncing around so much has contributed to my fear of losing more friendship. And that we turned out we didn't even touch on that. And I feel like sometimes I have to tamper my vulnerability because I'm afraid to tire people out. They don't want to hear more of the stuff that's been hard for me or how hard my mental health is or how hard it is, you know, how I'm really trying to find compassion for my kids or they're tired of me. And I just have to like put on, I have to build the picket fence a little bit more. So I really thought my answer was going to be that. But actually, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about how, you know, when I'm driving around in my minivan, sometimes I want to shout to people, 
I'm not just a mom in a minivan. And, you know, there's been a couple of times in my life that have made me kind of look around at the people around me, which is why I love your podcast so much and think, oh my gosh, what is going on with them? One was when I became a mom and I started looking around at all the people who are moms, people who are working moms, people who are in the grocery store, people who are at the park, people in my family who are moms and thinking, did you change like this? Is this what it feels like for you? But we're not talking about it. You know, like I felt that. And then secondly, when I had all the trauma that I mentioned, that is my family story and not my story to tell, but it impacted me deeply. And I would be at the store, you know, making a grocery transaction. And I would be looking at the person. And I'd be like, can she tell? Can she see in my eyes the sorrow? And so I think it's just like we need to remember that people have built picket fences for protection. But like you say again and again, everybody has a story. And um, I'm surprised again and again when I talk to my friends, strangers. Like I'm the kind of person who goes to a party, and I, and I know you're probably like this. You walk away, and you've either told your whole life story, and you're walking away with that vulnerability hangover, or you've gotten somebody's full story and you're walking away like holy crap did you know this like you know my husband will have known somebody for 10 years and I'll be like did you know this about so-and-so and he's like no I'm like yeah and so I just think we need to tread lightly we need to tread lightly because picket fences they're not very strong they're not very protective we think they are but they're not This has been another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. If you have a story to share or you know someone that does, please reach out to me on my website, Facebook, or Instagram. The link for all these things should be in the show notes. Will. They will be in the show notes. I'm going to put them there for you. And as always, be kind, because you never know what's going on beyond the picket fence. Are you still here? Thanks for sticking around to the end. That was a long one. But... Here's an interesting clip I couldn't fit anywhere else. Do you get paid as an athlete? No. So after I won the bronze medal, before the recession, there were lots of corporations that would sponsor athletes. So after I won the bronze medal, I came back and I got a sponsorship through what was then called OJOP, the Olympic Job Opportunities Program. And so corporations would hire Olympic and Paralympic athletes to work part-time and get paid a full-time salary. And then they would get all the time off they needed for training. So I was a nanny while I was training for the Paralympics and when I went to the Paralympics for three years. And then when I came home, I finished my degree And simultaneously, I got hired by Home Depot through the OJOP program. And so I would work 20 hours a week, but got paid a salary at 40 hours a week and could set my own schedule around my training schedule and my travel schedule and could travel as much as I needed. And we did get paid for meddling. At that time, it was not the same as what the Olympic athletes got paid. I kept the check stub. It's like in my box of, Paralympic stuff. Memoirs. I can't remember. <laughs> it was like a few thousand dollars that we got paid for meddling. Wow. Or maybe a thousand, maybe a thousand, maybe a thousand, a thousand or a couple thousand. Okay, this is the real end. Goodbye. I love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.